Hi, everyone. It's Lar Hesse Fisher, your host of MIT's Climate Change Podcast, Today I Learned Climate. So we were going to produce an episode on El Nino and its relationship with climate change. And then we found out that Outside In, which is a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio, already did that. And they did a really good job of it. So we're just going to air their entire episode for you to listen to this week. It's a really well done episode and we hope you enjoy it. And if you like it, check out other episodes from Outside In wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. It was just raining nonstop. It was constantly torrentially raining. In 1997, Kim Cobb set sail from Honolulu into the vast Pacific Ocean. It was very choppy. So you'd have these squall lines sweeping through these thunderstorm systems um, that would be dumping extreme amounts of rainfall, kicking up a, quite a wind, which would in turn uh, kick up waves in the ocean. Maybe you've heard of storm chasers. These are the folks you see driving towards extreme weather while the rest of us are busy evacuating. That's Kim Cobb. Only she isn't chasing hurricanes or tornadoes. She chases El Nino. To be at the equator during the largest El Nino event on record is kind of a, a gift to somebody who would later you know, call themselves a, an El Nino chaser. In case you haven't heard, El Nino is back in the news in a big way. Well, after months of anticipation, the World Meteorological Organization has made the call. El Nino is back. And this time, it's supposed to be a big one a sneak preview of a world scorched by global warming. We will see more storms, we will see more droughts. It could even get close to the 1.5 Celsius temperature threshold and would give us a glimpse, perhaps, of the climate in the future. Given how intense climate news has been lately, that sounds really scary. And yet, whenever El Nino is in the news, the first question on a lot of people's lips is, wait, what's El Nino again? Well, you're about to find out. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. Stay tuned. So there have been three big El Nino events in the past 40 years or so. In the early 1980s, then again in the late 90s, and finally in 2015 and 2016. But the only thing some folks remember from all those years is a single Saturday Night Live skit featuring Chris Farley. Damn El Nino! All other tropical storms must bow before El Nino. For those of you who don't habla espanol, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. The number one misconception of El Nino is that it's a storm. I think we have uh, Chris Farley to thank for this. So that's Emily Becker. She's a climate scientist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and she's one of three experts today. We're also speaking with Kim Cobb, professor in environmental and planetary studies at Brown University, an El Nino chaser, and okay, can you hear me? 
climate scientist Angel Munoz. And I'm a senior researcher at the Barcelona Supercomputing Center. So here's my theory on why El Nino is so hard to grasp. First of all, it's not just a weather event. It's a global shift in weather patterns. Second, El Nino tends to show up when it wants to. It doesn't have a predictable season or cycle. But one mystery I can answer is why it's called El Nino. It started centuries ago. Every year off the coast of northern Peru, fishermen noticed the ocean waters warmed up. And that used to coincide with, uh, you know, December and actually with Christmas time. And those warmer waters would bring different tropical fish species and crabs instead of the usual anchovies. They viewed it as a blessing, as a gift. And so they named it after the arrival of baby Jesus. So in Spanish, the, the Christmas child, we, we call it El Nino. Eventually, the term El Nino changed. Now it refers to this much bigger climate trend, one that spans the entire Pacific Ocean and increases temperatures around the globe. And that bigger phenomenon? It begins with a change in the wind. The trade winds are steady winds that blow across the equator. They're very strong. Tradesmen would sail with those winds. That's why they're called the trade winds. And they pretty much never change. Even though the weather on Earth can seem all over the place, most of it, including the trade winds, can be chalked up to the same basic physics. Warm air rises, cold air sinks. Combine those two things with the spinning of the planet and the movement of all that air and a whole lot of moisture across oceans and mountains, and what you get is a somewhat predictable set of weather patterns. It rains a lot in Seattle. Indonesia has a monsoon season. The Sahara Desert is dry as a bone. All part of the same sets of patterns. The trade winds are supposed to be like that. Normally, they blow warm water from the Americas westward towards Asia and Australia. That causes cold water from deep in the ocean to come up, cooling the coastal waters of places like Mexico and Peru. But during an El Nino, those winds mysteriously slow down. Sometimes they even reverse directions. And the ocean temperatures kind of flip sides. It's like Freaky Friday, where we have some of the most lush vegetation. Uh, we have droughts and wildfires. Countries like Indonesia their monsoon season practically disappears. But in parts of Peru and the American Southwest, which are normally really dry, it's like someone turns on the faucets. The desert western United States becomes uh, a floodplain. Parts of Northern California looked like the middle of the ocean. They called it the 100-year storm. Thousands of homes in jeopardy from mudslides after days of rain. The downpours causing major flooding. ABC's Matt Gutman. This freaky Friday flip in weather patterns? It can have some serious ripple effects across the globe, like disease outbreaks of cholera in East Africa, where flooding led to sewage contamination of drinking water in 2015 and 2016. And then in places like Brazil and Venezuela, more rain meant more mosquitoes and more mosquito-borne virus infections, diseases like dengue fever and malaria. It's hard to quantify the havoc that El Nino brings worldwide. But one estimate I saw puts the economic damage linked to the 1997-98 El Nino at $5.7 trillion and tens of thousands of lives lost. El Nino is so powerful, it might even be influencing global migration patterns. For example, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Here's Angel Munoz again. 
Angel says lots of farmers in these countries are subsistence farmers. So if you don't have uh, enough rainfall, so you, you go to bed with an empty stomach and you cannot feed your, your family, at some point it's so bad that you actually start asking for money to your family, your friends, or you go to the banks and you ask for, for a loan, waiting for a, or hoping for a, a good year next year. The following year, you expect to have a good yield for your crops so you can make some money with your crops to pay the bank back. But that doesn't happen. Here's another weird thing about El Nino. It can last anywhere from nine months to a couple of years. So then you have nothing. You know, you literally have nothing. Angel says this can drive people to the cities to look for work. But instead of finding jobs, many find social unrest, gang violence, and more. Violence is a common thing. So uh, your family is in danger, and at some point you just really, really think about migrate. But a lot of people know it's very tough. It's very expensive because you need to pay the coyotes a lot of money in order to get illegally to the U.S. El Nino is, of course, just one of many factors that might influence why people choose to pack up their lives and move to another country. But one thing we can say for sure is that El Nino is part of the equation, and that it's getting stronger. We only started getting good scientific measurements in the early 1980s, during a really strong El Nino. And then the 1997-98 El Nino was even bigger. And then came... 2015. Forecasters now say a so-called Godzilla El Nino. A Godzilla, a Godzilla El, Nino. El Nino. It could bring once-in-a-generation storms to the West this winter. Once-in-a-generation? Try once every handful of years. Eight years between the 2015-2016 event and the 2023-2024 event. The shortest recurrence interval ever in the history of instrumental records. And this El Nino, it's projected to be the biggest one yet. Which would make this, I don't know, the Mecha Godzilla El Nino? The Super Godzilla El Nino? In fact, climate scientists warned that this year's El Nino could push global temperatures close to that 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold the world agreed we don't want to exceed if we want to avoid the worst impacts of global warming. Thing is, we're already there. July was the hottest month on record officially 1.5 degrees warmer than the pre-industrial era. And those deadly wildfires in Maui? Some experts are chalking it up to climate change and El Nino. So, welcome to the year 2050? What does this El Nino-fueled preview tell us? And how can you tell what's climate change and what's El Nino? Those questions and more, right after the break. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. So we've told you what El Nino is and why it causes so much havoc for people. Now I want to try and explain why climate scientists and El Nino experts focus so much on a very particular underwater habitat. You set sail from Honolulu, in my case, 
And it's really like weeks to get to the Central Pacific. So in 1997, self-described El Nino chaser Kim Cobb was on her first of many trips to a string of tropical atolls and lagoons south of Hawaii called the Line Islands. All of a sudden, the reef comes into vision from below. It was a coral reef. It looks a bit like lava lamps, like lay them all out in a massive art installation. And it's all kinds of shades of purple and tans and every shade of blue. And it's just kind of, you know, undulating under you in the waves and, and all of the light that's shimmering off of it. Now, if polar bears are the poster child for climate impacts in the Arctic, corals do the same thing under the sea. But what exactly are they? Are they plants? Are they animals? Well, corals are animals, uh, but they have algal symbionts inside their tissues. And so that what, that's what gives them their beautiful colors. And these microscopic algae embedded in their tissues uh, convert sunlight into food for the coral and exchange the, the algal symbionts get a great home <laughs> in a very competitive real estate landscape. But when the water around a coral reef gets too hot, like it can during the Freaky Friday El Nino, these corals lose their algal buddies. We refer to that as bleaching. Uh, The coral is still alive. Its transparent tissue is basically showing just white because of the underlying white skeleton. And if those coral symbionts don't return in a matter of weeks or several months, the coral will die from starvation. Now... Here's why so much climate coverage seems to revolve around corals. Corals are an integral part of the ocean's ecosystems. They act as little nurseries for baby fish, which in turn are food for bigger organisms in the food chain. But also, the decline of ocean health would be a lot harder to notice without them. Kim says that when it comes to other sea creatures... Dolphin populations, tuna populations, crab and other crustacea... It's hard to measure the health of their overall populations. Not so with corals. They are stationary. You can see them by satellite, and we can watch them slip through our fingers because they're sitting there for everybody to see. It kind of reminds me of video games that show a health bar for your life. When the color drains down to nothing, it's game over. Coral reefs are a frontline indicator of marine health. And right now, the frontline indicators are not looking so good. When Kim last dove on the Line Island corals, just after the Godzilla 2015-2016 El Nino, she says they were almost all dead. They succumbed wholesale, every single one of them, uh, to this ocean temperature extreme. When all of this comes together in this kind of perfect storm year 2023, uh, people have to really be mindful and make sure that they're understanding the climate risks and take them seriously, not just for the six months to come, but for the decades of warming that are already baked in. Okay. Here's one more confusing thing to add to my list of why El Nino is such a mystery. El Nino is a natural type of climate change that goes back way before burning fossil fuels was even a thing. So then how do we know what's climate change and what's El Nino? And how are the two interacting with each other? Short answer is, it's complicated. But I do have a metaphor. 
You know, I imagine that climate is like a symphony, like an orchestra. This is Angel Munoz again. He says to imagine each part of our global weather system as an instrument. Temperatures, humidity, wind patterns, all of those are working in concert. So sometimes you can hear an instrument more clearly. So imagine that this instrument is playing a solo in the symphony. Climate change, Angel says, influences the conductor of the whole orchestra. So in some cases, actually, climate change is helping the solo to be louder. And in some other cases, it's diluting it because it's also making louder a few other instruments at the same time. There's actually a great example of this happening right now. Normally, El Nino has this effect where it suppresses hurricanes from forming in the Atlantic. It does this by changing the way the winds blow there. Which, in turn, messes up the storm formation process. So, if we were only dealing with El Nino, we could be sure of a quiet hurricane season this year. But there's this other thing happening in the Atlantic right now. super warm water. Climate change is warming ocean temperatures big time. There are coastal waters in Florida that literally topped 100 degrees, the same temperature as a hot tub. A hot tub! And hot ocean temperatures usually supercharge hurricanes. So who's going to win out? El Nino's hurricane dampener? or the Atlantic Ocean's record high temperatures. NOAA just updated their prediction, saying the record high ocean temperatures are probably going to win and we're going to have a big hurricane season. But the only thing we know for sure is that we are in uncharted territory. It's a brave new climate world out there. We we really do have to rise the challenge of of our species and um, bend our emissions curves so that we can limit the damages, the impacts of global warming on urban heat islands, the impacts of global warming on food production, water resources, infrastructure, extreme rainfall, flooding, droughts, wildfires, dot, dot, dot. Maybe this is another reason why it's so hard to remember El Nino. That feeling of powerlessness. Climate change and El Nino, they're just too big and too complicated to do anything about. Well, It's true that we can't stop this year's mega El Nino. But we still have time to stop this climate preview from becoming our climate reality. All this wild weather news, it doesn't have to become permanent. It's really important to remember that we're still in driver's seat of our climate future. And we have choices to make. (laughs) They're very important ones. They're going to have a very lasting legacy stretching into the centuries and millennia of our planet's future and they'll be decided this decade and and possibly the next.
This episode was reported and produced by Felix Poon and was edited by Taylor Quimby with additional editing help from Justine Paradise and me, Nate Hedging. Our team also includes Jung Yoon Han. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Special thanks to Jung Yoon for playing the violin and Michael Prentke for the timpani recording. Thanks also to El Nino experts George Adamson and Kevin Trenberth. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Walt Adams, and Bright Arm Orchestra. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 